Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the ideas and books which have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. My guest today is Charlie Dewberry, and we're going to be talking about the Mongols and their effect on pretty much the whole world, but also Western civilization in particular. Welcome, Charlie. Yeah, thank you. So go ahead and let us know where we are in terms of history and what background do you think we know in order to understand the Mongols' effect in Western civilization and the world more generally? Okay. Well, thanks, Gil. Yeah, first I'd want to go all the way back to Greek and Roman times. The Silk Road has existed from at least Greek and Roman times. And what's interesting about that is the most wealthy part of the world at this juncture and all the way through the Middle Ages is China. China is by far the wealthiest country in the world. And goods from China, the silks, the ceramics, and all those kinds of things are coming by way of the Silk Road, an overland route that goes through all the Istans now. Uh and then went all the way to the Mediterranean. So early the Silk Road is operating, and a lot of the wealth of the West is a result of the trade with the Silk Road. Now, at the period of time we're coming into the Middle Ages, we think that the Silk Road is kind of withering away a bit. Rome has collapsed in 4th or 5th century, depending on who you talk to, China's declined a bit, and then the Persian Empire falls to the Muslims. And so you'd think, well, okay, it's just not going to exist here. But actually, it grew in volume through the period of time because basically the Islamic Empire covered the west half of the Silk Road, and so there was largely peace, and with peace, the principle is peace and political stability equals wealth. So basically, the Silk Road coming into the 1200s is operating at a fairly high level. So the idea that you're saying is sometimes misunderstood is the idea that the Silk Road goes away after the collapse of Rome in the 4th mm-hmm. or 5th century, and then it doesn't come back until Marco Polo or something like right. that. Yes, that's quite often assumed, but that part's actually not true. Yeah. So, And can you remind us when Marco Polo is writing? Sure, Marco Polo is writing at the time of the Mongols because Genghis Khan gave him a letter signed that he could go anywhere and no one touched Marco Polo, and he could go anywhere he wanted to go. (laughs) So what are the dates of that? Well, basically the Mongols, their empire, it lasts from roughly 1200 to like 1270, so about 70 years or so for Genghis Khan. All of the time between the fall of Rome Mm -hmm. and the late 1200s, the Silk Road is still active. Yes. But we can just mistakenly have this impression that it kind of goes away because the book that people remember about the Silk Road is written by Marco Polo, which is at the end of that period. Correct. Okay, great. So this trade route is still operating during this time. You mentioned earlier that the Muslims who are controlling the regions involving the Silk Road are active. Is there anything else you want to say about them, or do you think we have the context to get? Well, just that they had taken over certainly all of Mesopotamia and into Central Asia, as well as North Africa. Uh And they had established a very homogeneous, pretty stable political unit. Uh So the Silk Road is operating all the way through North Africa to Morocco now. Uh with the Muslims. And for that period of time, 
are Western European countries excluded from that trade? There's historical animosity between Christians and Muslims. Mm -hmm. And so how did that affect the West's access to this trade for the silk? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, in large part, the Muslims are essentially barricading this trade from Europe. So Europe at this point is really a backwater, uh -huh. you know, because it is cut off from all the wealth right. coming from this international trade. Yeah. So you have the collapse of Rome, and as we've talked about in previous podcasts, you have people gravitating to strong men mm -hmm. who control a fortress and surrounding lands. And perhaps there's a king who's over those folks, but there isn't the political organization on a large scale that you would have otherwise. And on top of that, then, you also have this economic lack mm -hmm. in that people are not trading with this immensely wealthy or wealth-creating trade route right. that had previously been accessible. Right. And, and another piece that's interesting about this is at roughly the same time that Rome disintegrated, the Chinese dynasty of that time, the Han dynasty, also in about 250 had collapsed. Uh -huh. But what's interesting is China reorganized into the next dynasty very quickly. What's interesting in Europe is the Carolingian Empire was a similar move, uh -huh. only it didn't make it uh -huh. for Europe. And so Europe comes apart for centuries where China continues now under a stable new dynasty mm. to continue to innovate, continue yeah. their technology, yeah. and become far more prosperous yeah. than what happens in Europe. Yeah. So it's very interesting yeah. that Europe just remains fragmented yeah. and decentralized. Yeah. What about Constantinople or Byzantium, the more eastern part of Rome, depending on how historians want to sort of think about the Roman Empire, one thing that you'll often hear is the western part of the empire, which is centered in Italy, falls. Mm -hmm. but the eastern part, which is centered in Constantinople, it doesn't fall for what seems like too long. And into, right. isn't it into the 16th century? That well, yeah, it's actually 1453. Okay. So, so but, yeah. but anyway, so for the Eastern part, yes, they're more wealthy. They maintain some contact with the Silk Road, even uh -huh. once the Muslims begin to take over Mesopotamia uh -huh. and the Middle East. But then basically what happens when the Eastern Empire is collapsing because uh -huh. the Arabs are taking it. It comes to a point where the only thing left is Constantinople yeah. itself. Well, at that point in time, it's economically pretty cut off from yeah. the Silk Road. And so what happens is the Eastern Church moves north uh -huh. and becomes associated with Russia. Russia. Interesting. So this is the environment into which the Mongols are coming onto the scene. You have the Silk Road, which is producing enormous wealth because of trade. There's stability because of the Muslim political structures and rulers in this area. How do the Mongols first come onto the scene? Well, it's very interesting. The Mongols are very tribal, normally, and so that means it's pretty unusual for them to actually unite. The tribes are very strong. So it takes a real strong man. Uh -huh. And so basically over a period of years, Genghis Khan breaks down the tribal and makes stronger a larger unit. Uh -huh. And then once he has the larger unit put together, between the tribes, Mongols always would either plunder or raid. But now that you've got them all organized, they've got to have an outlet. Huh. Part of it was strategic of, okay, now we got them organized. Now we got to go do something. Right. 
So how did Genghis Khan go about breaking down the tribes so that he could form this larger unit, this army? Yeah, well, we don't know a large part of that. They didn't leave a lot of written records. Yeah. But it appears that he was very successful in early in raiding neighboring tribes. Uh-huh. And then he would integrate them in, but he would also, in the army, break down the tribes uh-huh. and make a homogeneous army. So these do seem to be strategies that are similar, not necessarily derived from, but similar to, for instance, what Alexander the Great tries to do by integrating mm-hmm. Persian sensibilities or the Romans who try to include folks that they've conquered into their system. Right. So now when Genghis Khan goes out, then the first place he goes is obviously China. Uh-huh. You might as well go get the wealth itself. Right. <laughs> so, so they go for China. And the interesting thing is the Mongols, their kind of warfare is so different from the way anybody else is thinking about warfare, that it creates asymmetric armies. And whenever that happens, everything goes out the door as far as how you may think it's going to turn out. So, for example, the Mongol armies are nomads. They're riding ponies. There's no cities. They're all traveling together. Every male is part of this. I mean, so every male is part of the army. And a hunt is not unlike an ambush. or yeah. a, So their whole way of life is essentially the same, warfare. And they have a weapon, a composite bow, that is deadly even against an armored knight right. at 200 yards. Right. And the story is that by the time a kid is 10, that he can be riding a pony at full speed at greater distance than 100 yards, he can hit a one-foot target. Yeah. So part of the success of the Mongol army seems to be dependent on the particular skill of Mm. the horsemen in this army. Yeah, so like other groups, there were the Vikings before who just would all of a sudden show up, and so they're ambush, surprise. But the Mongols do that in spades on land. So they can, it's recorded that they went over 130 miles in a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. So they can suddenly just appear. Right. Another factor in any sort of military context is the question of logistics. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Mongols are nomadic, that means they can bring the supply depot with them. Right. What's their main source of... Are they herds? How are they making that work? How are they supplying food for themselves? They're, they're largely, certainly at the beginning, they're largely nomadic and they're herding goats and sheep okay. that are with them. Another very interesting piece is about their horses, you know, their little ponies. Okay. Their little ponies will run any other horses into the ground. Oh. But the other thing is they live on such poor grass that, for instance, if you put a Roman horse on the grass that these ponies are eating, it'll starve to death. I see. So you have the advantage that your animals are capable of being sustained on what would be less than ideal right. circumstances. So one of the things that's somewhat discussed in military history, and particularly cavalry history, is how, for instance, the chariot is favored early on because horses have not been bred to actually carry mm-hmm. humans. They're not strong enough to actually hold the weight of a human being. Mm-hmm. So are these ponies smaller than Roman horses, or are oh. they just built different in that they can do with less sustenance? Well, I mean, if you ever see a picture... It looks like this huge guy sitting on this tiny little pony and his feet almost drag on the ground. Oh, wow. And so they're very small. Yeah. And you look at them and go, you know, how can this pony even hold this guy up? (laughs) So, but again, they're incredibly strong and built for endurance. Yeah. 
So part of the fact of them living their whole lives doing the same sorts of things all the time in hunting and ambushing means they just get a lot of hours doing this kind of work. There are a lot of armies throughout history that have success and conquest, which don't rely so heavily on the soldiers being as skilled as mm -hmm. these folks were. Is that, do you think that's right? Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, basically a Mongol army at war is the same as a group of Mongols living their lives. Yeah. I mean, there's really very little, if any, difference. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on to talking about their impact on things, I'm curious what you think, you know, the Roman army, very, very good at training folks. Mm -hmm. They had a very disciplined army. It's, you know, there's the famous incident of Hannibal coming over the mountain with elephants, but Romans were actually pretty good at dealing with elephants with mm -hmm. infantrymen. When they first encounter them, they don't know what to do because, again, that asymmetry you were talking about. But eventually they just get a system down mm -hmm. for how do we deal with an elephant. So given that, can you talk about, aside from the skill of these archers, other factors that may have been involved in having a very disciplined army deal with them? Or was it just the fact that you didn't have that kind of discipline because Rome had broken down, that you couldn't deal with this kind of army? Yeah. So in the West, there are no armies. I mean, everything's decentralized. Right. And largely, it's just either a noble having certain knights through feudalism who's providing the defense. Well, what's one or two knights going to do against a bunch of Mongols right, show up. Right, I mean, right. that's part of the asymmetry. The other part is just if you have an infantry and you decide you're going to go get the Mongols, you just start marching your infantry out in the grasslands. Right. Well, you may never see a Mongol. <laughs> right, right. Yes, the fact that they can live on marginal land right. is huge because wars get conducted in certain parts of the map for a reason <laughs> because... You just can't go over mountains or go places where there isn't food if you get a thick enough forest where it's just like, we can't, how do we even get right. things to where they need to go? Right. You just, we don't deal with that. We have to fight this war over on this plane <laughs> right. because it's just so much more complicated to have to deal with very, very complicated conditions like uh -huh. that. So if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, then because of what has happened in history, you just don't have the, the structure for a force that could figure out the Mongols and deal with them or bring enough resources to bear to go find them. And right. Sort of deal with so them. for instance, look at what China did with the other groups even earlier that were out on the steps. They decided they're just going to build a wall to keep them right. out. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it's very difficult to deal with an army yeah. of this kind. Yeah. But if you have adequate training and sufficient resources, building that wall does mm -hmm. end up being, you know, if, if you have your wall around the Silk Road, for instance, if you could have a wall around the Silk Road, right, right. that would deal with the problem mm -hmm. because now I don't have to go out and find them and stop them as right. long as I can deal with them anytime they show up. Right. But that just isn't what happened. No. And the other part of this is they showed up quickly and instantly just took over China before they even realized what was going on. Yeah. Well, after that, after they took the first major Chinese cities and things, well, now they incorporated into their army all of the technical skills of the Chinese in doing sieges. So you would go, well, how in the world could a Mongol army deal with a walled city? Well, how? They got a bunch of Chinese. Right, who have that technology. Right. This is sounding very similar to things that the Romans would do, where there were certain city-states that were famous for nothing's coming off the top of my head, but they were sort of famous for their archery or mm -hmm. their 
a certain kind of formation or whatever, and the Romans would incorporate that. This is why you end up having mercenary armies Mm -hmm. throughout all of history is because you get folks who are really good at a particular thing Mm -hmm. and you need them to do that particular thing. And so the Mongols are appropriating Mm -hmm. those skills from the folks that they're taking. Right. And so you've mentioned a couple of times the Roman army and, and I think it is reasonable to compare them. And there's some further things that are common. I mean, the Roman army was known to be pretty ruthless if you decided you were going to defend yourself. Well, the Mongols were like that, too, is they would be absolutely ruthless. Uh Why? Because they're going to come to you and say, well, you got a choice. And you can either join us or we'll fight. And so this ruthlessness was one side of them But they were different in the Romans after that, is Romans might let people keep their culture and things to a certain degree, but the Mongols took a whole different approach, Uh and it's argued that their approach then to integrate all these areas that they take into a system is... Their integration is arguably the first modern economic empire. Okay. I want to talk about more implications and more comparisons with (laughs) Romans, but I think we need now to talk about some of that history. Okay. Get the the broad sort of overview of what actually happened, and then we can talk more about implications and how we can think about that and stuff. So we have these... Very skilled warriors. Genghis Khan breaks down the tribes. He gets them all assembled. He decides, strategically, we got to do something with these folks. Mm -hmm. They go in, they take over parts of China. They integrate their Mm -hmm. capabilities into their army. What happens from there? Okay, well, next they just start moving along the Silk Road. So now they take all of Central Asia, and then they take on the Muslims. Uh Uh-huh. And so they essentially take over all the trade from China to virtually the eastern shore of the Mediterranean and create the largest empire ever created under one unit. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the Muslim army, their military capability, because as we already mentioned, Europe is fragmented and can't Mm -hmm. really put an organized army together, but Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want to assume that Muslim military capability is superior just because there's nothing to the European, right? What are they doing? When they encounter the Mongols, they're clearly losing out. Right. But can you just talk a little bit about their... I don't really know okay. how all of that went down. Okay. As I say, the Mongols didn't leave many written sure, records. Sure. So I don't really know. I mean, we know that the Muslims had a considerable cavalry, uh-huh. so they also had a lot of cavalry. Yeah. But it seems to me that the difference is it's that element of surprise. Yeah. That's the element that the Muslims can't figure out how uh-huh. to deal with because when the Mongols show up, it's in force. Yeah. Now, if the Mongols show up and there's a large army against them, well, they just won't attack. Right. So they're just going to avoid combat. And so if I had to guess, I probably should do some more reading. I assume sure, sure. there's something out there. But I don't know it. But my suspicion is that the Mongols are relying on the strategy of we're just going to show up And if we got the odds and this is a slam dunk, we'll do it. If not, we'll wait till later and try somewhere else. And one of the things about Muslim organization is you don't have one overarching empire. Yeah. You may have very powerful rulers, but they're not necessarily connected each to each other. Right. So you have these seams. Yeah. that the Mongols might be able to exploit as their sort of... Sure, well, and they would understand that well, because, again, it's a tribal organization. Right, right. <laughs> so they know how to organize right. and defeat a tribal right. opponent. So one of the things that is of interest to military historians is the difference in cultures 
between different kinds of armies because they reflect something about the underlying culture. Mm -hmm. So there are certain armies where the virtue is don't ever stop fighting, die to the last man. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very Spartan Mm -hmm. kind of idea or maybe even Greek kind of idea. Mm -hmm. But there are other armies where the, the virtue is, I believe there are some Native American tribes where the virtue is, can I run in and touch you mm-hmm. and then get away? Right. That Greek sort of idea would say, well, the retreat there is cowardly. Mm-hmm. But the idea for the Native American is, no, I demonstrated that I can go into the pit of danger and come out unscathed. Right. So could you talk about a little bit what is that culture look like for the Mongols. We were sort of touching on a little bit with how Mm -hmm. the Mongols would relate to, oh, there's a big force. We're not going to do that. But Mm -hmm. are there other things that are of interest or unique about Mongol warrior culture that you think is worth Um, mentioning? Well, it's kind of two sides of one coin here of the Mongols are absolutely ruthless Uh when they have the odds. Uh But if the odds aren't there, uh-huh. they, they aren't going to participate. Yeah. And they're just not going to fight. Well, that in itself is a very unique set of traits for an army. And it will absolutely frustrate an opponent. Right. <laughs> so that's the fundamental strength uh-huh. is that if you show up and the odds are bad, they're all going to split. Yeah. And they're good at splitting. They're good at splitting, yeah. <laughs> so again, it's just an asymmetry in how they've approached warfare. For them, it's just a way of life. It always was a way of life. It started out tribe versus tribe, and now they got organized in this big thing. But it really is still that same sort of mentality. I would call it an ambush kind of strategy, or it's just... We're just going to show up in ambush if it looks like an easy take. Right, right. Okay, so you mentioned briefly, and I think we kind of jumped over it, but you said that they end up having the largest empire Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. That's the whole space of the Silk Road, Mm -hmm. large portions of China. Yeah, Yeah. in Central Asia, all the Istans, Mm -hmm. and then pieces of India. Certainly then all of Mesopotamia, all of the Middle East, yeah, all the way to the Mediterranean. So, And you said that they accomplished this in 25 years. Mm-hmm. And so we have other instances of folks setting up a pretty big empire in a short amount of time. person who comes to mind for Westerners is Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. His His mileage might not be as extensive, but his career is similarly short (laughs) what happens to their empire once genghis khan is out of the picture because when alexander is on the scene his charisma is kind of what's holding everything together and once he goes everybody starts infighting and we get the split Uh in his empire does the mongol empire hold together even after that main person it holds together for a while after genghis khan but it does begin to come apart yeah and then a a relative Uh comes on the scene a little bit later and again he's another charismatic figure that does hold it together so that's why it lasts for like 70 years Uh instead of the shorter alexandrian empire (laughs) but 70 years in the scale of things is not a long time no What happens as that begins to unravel? What does the disintegration of the Mongol Empire look like as we get on later in history? Well, China essentially recovers fairly quickly. I mean, China has a long history of dynasties, and then once a dynasty fades, you got all the warlords that are now going to form the new dynasty. So that's what China does. So the Istans in the middle... They essentially do go back to mostly tribal, but even though they're tribal and they continue tribal warfares and and things in between after 
the Muslims are there. Their interest really is trade, so they rebuild the Silk Road. The Muslims still control a major part of their empire yet, Uh and once the Mongols start weakening, then they take back over portions of the Silk Road that they had had before. So it is, in a lot of ways, very similar to Alexander's career, in which a lot of what's holding the fabric of this very potent conquering force is Mm. this single individual. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you have another, that's just good luck, (laughs) that you turned out to have another guy who could kind of do this. But it says more about the leaders of this group than it does of the administration, mm-hmm. for instance. Part of the reason Rome lasts for so long is because it's not just one particular leader. It's right. the fact that they have built other systems that can sustain their empire as mm-hmm. they're doing stuff. Okay. One of the reasons why China recovers is because China is on really good land, mm-hmm. right? I mean, sure. part of the issue with the step that we've already talked about is how it's marginal, mm-hmm. but that's not stopping them because they have horses and they have folks who can s- deal with the marginality of their land mm-hmm. and they're bringing herds with them, whereas China just has good land. So they just use that as the base from mm-hmm. out of which they continue to work. Okay. Let's turn and talk about their brutality a little bit more. I I think it's a very modern sensibility that any sort of war is a brutal war. In the 20th century, particularly in American culture, with things like anti-war sentiment for things like the Korean War or Vietnam. There's just the sense that any war is bad because it leads to this sort of brutality and violence. Is there a marked difference between the kind of brutality that the Mongols displayed and other sorts of military forces that you think is significant. I just want to talk about that issue somewhat. Mm -hmm. This idea, if they're particularly brutal, that implies that there are military forces that are less brutal. And kind of what does that look like? It's more a different strategy and approach of brutality. So in the case of the Mongols, it's almost like nature itself. It's almost Darwinian in the sense of, we're going to hit really hard and we're going to be brutal. But once that peace is done, well, then the brutality's over Yeah, for a Mongol. Uh-huh. So the brutality is only the actual attack phase, right. where in lots of other armies, the brutality just continues. Yeah. It's just the fabric of the whole interaction yeah. from beginning to end. And, and that is really different with the Mongols here. Yeah. Let me just try to make clear some distinctions here. But during the Second World War, there is a concern that technology is going to shape mm-hmm. warfare rather than humanity. Mm-hmm. This seems to have been a concern of somebody like C.S. Lewis, You know, his main thing is theology and writing stories and things like that. But he is concerned that you can have a system that ends up brutalizing people, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things demonstrative of this would be something like the atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. Because we no longer have to use discourse or diplomacy Mm -hmm. as a way to resolve conflicts. Mm -hmm. which had, you know, with something like the Peace of Westphalia, Mm -hmm. had been a part of how war was conducted. Yes, there was fighting. Yes, there was brutality. But once things got resolved, you tried to work out, okay, how do we do this? Mm -hmm. Whereas the atom bomb, we have solved this problem technologically, which takes the humanity out of the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, It's how I'm talking about this making any sense? And... Well, it's just really, really different, of course. Yeah. 
in talking about the Mongols. So yeah. uh, let me go back, because first, this is the biggest empire ever created in the world. I mean, you took over China, the wealthiest right. piece of real estate on the planet, and you did it in 25 years. Now, you did it with no technological breakthroughs at all, no new religions, you didn't write any books, you got no new crops, you don't have craftsmen weaving cloth and casting metals, you're not making pottery. I mean, this is a totally different culture right. that doesn't value any of the kinds of things that a modern Western yeah. culture would value. Yeah. The place that really shows up as different is what did they do when they took over a place? Yeah. Most people, when they think of war and somebody brutal and barbarians like the Mongols, the brutality will continue forever yeah. until somebody finally throws them out. Well, that's not at all what happened. I think now is probably a good time to go talk about those things that they instituted. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. And uh, so to start with, Genghis Khan, in a sense began by completely smashing the feudal system wherever they contacted it. And in large ways, many of the ideas that come out of the Renaissance are actually ideas that came from Genghis Khan, such as every human being is going to be equal. Uh -huh. There isn't a aristocratic privileges. Uh -huh. There's not a hierarchy in society. Everybody's equal. We're going to build a system based on merit, loyalty, and achievement. Uh -huh. So he organized the entire Silk Road into one system uh -huh. that had never been done. Yeah. He lowered taxes for everybody. Uh -huh. He abolished taxes for doctors, teachers, priests, and educational institutions. Uh -huh. Now, that was a fairly novel right. thing for a Mongol. Right. To do. It doesn't fit the stereotype very right. well. He established the first international postal system. You could mail a letter in the Mediterranean and have it go to China. Initially, he didn't hoard wealth. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, wealth is a real problem for a Mongol because it kind of slows Where you do down. You carry it? <laughs> yeah. But then he created one international law for the whole area. Yeah. The other, he granted complete religious freedom to everybody. In fact, at his court, he really enjoyed having the greatest individuals who represented all these great religions come and argue about religion. Huh. And one of his wives was even a Christian. Huh. And he made it, well, it probably was one of the things that helped keep his army together for a while. They were killing bandits and pirates. So really tightening up the security yeah. of the Silk Road. And they never took any hostages. Either they got killed in the initial right. thing, but that's it. We aren't going to take any hostages. We don't do that. So anyway, just those sorts of things, you can see why the arguments made that he created the first modern economic empire is we've got religious freedom, we've got equality, right. and literacy was highly valued. Yeah. So anyway, a very modern sounding yes. system yes. in 1200. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you said earlier that many of the ideas that come into the Renaissance you're not meaning that people looked at Genghis Khan and went, ah, yes. Or do you think there is a derivation from what Genghis Khan was doing to these more, what we would think of as modern ideas about education and... Somewhat, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, the communication obviously happens. If the Silk Road is in place... Yeah then there's communication happening yeah. from both ends. Yeah. Also, you're getting folks like Marco Polo coming yeah. back and now writing books. Remember, this is a time in Europe when the majority of all people 
never got more than 25 miles from home yeah. in their lifetimes. Yeah. And now Marco Polo has been to China yeah. for a while right. and back and now telling us all about this system. And he and others are now telling the history of what had happened and what has Genghis Khan set up here. So I think it's reasonable to assume that the ideas that he had put in place do get taken to Europe. And can you tease out how that works out in the subsequent history of the Renaissance and the later Middle Ages? Because it is quite a while until we get these more modern things getting implemented Uh later. So Uh can you just kind of tease out how you see that working? Well, one of the things is you have to look at where his empire was. Uh And so the fact that he laid this system out in those places. Uh Well, first you have China. Well, China wasn't going to go this route. So it's not going to last in China. Yeah. And Central Asia tends to be more tribal and warlordish. So a lot of these ideas aren't going to hang on either, as well as many of the Islamic areas that are again taken over. So the actual areas where it was implemented, it doesn't last. Yeah. It really kind of doesn't last. But as always, I mean, it was part of the Mongol thing that part of what they were doing was trading in ideas. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that trade in ideas, enough of that got spread around uh-huh. in books and things. I don't know. I, I think it'd be very interesting to explore and see direct evidence. For yeah, it. yeah. It's interesting. We look at modernity in the West. Mm -hmm. And there is a certain pressure that those ideas exercise on the shape of the culture, as it were. Mm -hmm. And the empire that the Mongols form only lasts 70 years. And so it's easy to think, well, the reason why he supported these various things was because that was the pluralistic Mm -hmm. system that he had to put in place for everybody to be able to live together, Uh which as we move on in modernity becomes really important as one of the central values of Western civilization, Mm -hmm. right? It becomes that piece of Westphalia and Mm -hmm. at least lip service gets paid to everybody working together, Mm -hmm. you know, basically after that. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think about was the reason he did this because he thought these were good ideas or was there just pressure? Does a pluralistic society only work if you have these sorts of freedoms available? Well, it seems to me that actually his thinking is more modern than even the ideas you were putting out there. I mean, I think this is 21st century thinking. Okay. So he went to war, but what did he go to war to do? Well, obviously, the strategy was to take over the Silk Road. Right. This is an economic empire. Uh Uh-huh. Why it fell apart was once he was gone... He had not laid anything politically in place. Economics is more important than politics. Well, there's an awful lot of 20 and 21st century people who look at global things and say, well, economic empires are what really count today, not political. Uh Well, there was Genghis Khan in 1200 saying that. I'm not aware of anybody else really in between making that kind of argument Yeah, that we're fundamentally going to build an economic empire, not a political empire. Right. And that fascinates me. Why yeah. is it Genghis Khan that came up right. with that? So let's talk about the merits of that idea because mm-hmm. his empire does fall apart. Right. So it does seem that the 
economic empire may lead to these sorts of pluralistic values because you've Mm got to have everybody working together to make the trade work. Right. But it's not going to last unless you have political structures in place like the Romans. Does that seem right? Well, that's certainly one side of the argument. We'll lay out the other (laughs) side of the argument. Well, well, okay. Let's take globalization. Sure. Let's say, okay, there's a global economy. Right. And we don't care what kind of government you got. Just participate in the economics. I see. We don't care about your politics. Uh Uh-huh. So, I mean, even with Genghis Khan gone, there's a sense in which the ideas were still there as shadows, Uh meaning that there was an awful lot of folks associated with the Silk Road Uh who, irrespective of what the politics did, Uh it's still the economics were of higher value in, in what they sorted out. Uh So the issue, so there's a sense in which it seems to me you can look at it and say, well, it kind of did go his way Uh because even though, well, why it fell apart, though, was China then went back to political, Uh our warlords went back to being warlords, and the Muslims went back to being Muslims. So if if you hadn't done that, if you would have just stuck with a economic, why would it have ever fallen apart? I see. I see what you're saying. You're saying that if the economic empire is the supreme value, Mm -hmm. then you can have this pluralism Mm -hmm. and it ends up working out. Right. But the issue is when, when ideology Mm -hmm. comes into the picture, then the interests involved override whatever wealth and prosperity that might be in the picture. Right. And isn't that the modern economic argument? Is just leave all the ideology out of this and just make it economic. Yeah. The issue is that it seems like those things are not so easily separable in practice, Mm -hmm. right? That their political interests... You know, granted, ideological interests are different from political interests per se, mm-hmm. right? China continues to be really resource rich, mm-hmm. for instance. And so trading with them, you want to keep a relationship with them politically so that you can have the economic benefit of trading with them, right? Mm-hmm. And so. It's not clear to me, at least, and maybe you can clarify this, isn't the fall of the Mongol Empire, isn't that just an example of how you can't just sustain an economic empire? Well, it certainly could be. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at history, right? yeah, economic empires haven't lasted real long. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's an interesting observation for uh-huh. the current debate. Uh-huh. is people are saying, well, war's been done away with. Right. I mean, we should all just do this through economics now right. and, and make it an economic right. empire. Well, the point is history sort of shows that, well, that's a nice idea. Yeah. But history doesn't kind Seem of show to bear that, that out. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's not a long-term strategy because other things become of higher value to people than just that global yeah. Economy. Yeah. And the other part of this is the whole military side of this. I mean, Genghis Khan was a military such that he could show up anytime, anywhere, and, and sort of get things straightened out. Right. But where you don't have a really fast, asymmetric army that just slam dunks everything, right. now... The fact that somebody begins to build a military on the Silk Road, it's like, oh, maybe they're trying to take this over, so I got to build a. Right. And then there yes, it goes. Yes, I mean, this, this right. is the problem of World War I and World yes. War II, is all of the. <laughs> 
all of the European neighbors are looking right. at each other going, oh, right. they're building stuff. We should build stuff. Right. And everybody's holding each other at a standstill in terms of resource management, right. let alone fighting. Right. And the devastation comes because then they have such massive resources right. to throw against each other. And, I mean, plan A is don't stop the fighting until you run out of stuff. Right. Well, that's and, a war of <laughs> annihilation. Right. Yeah, right. it, it simply becomes wars of annihilation. Yeah. But anyway, I just find it fascinating that Genghis Khan had this different picture. Yeah. I'm not building a political empire. Right. I'm building an economic yeah. empire. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because, you know, to think that a Mongol would be thinking like that. Sure. You know, just the stereotype of right. the guys on the steps, right. you know. With folks like late 19th century Europeans uh-huh. who are just going, well, we can do stuff better. Right. And the fact that the intelligentsia of a certain age right. ends up accepting <laughs> this thing that someone that they might have criticized a hundred years before, uh-huh. you know. So as we're wrapping up, Charlie, are there any other big takeaways I think it's been very interesting to talk about some of the dynamics of this army, how they actually did things and the implications for the world. But are there any other things that you want to mention that you think are worth thinking about as we're closing up our discussion of the Mongols? Well, I think to me the most fascinating part of this is to look at their culture and the fact that technologically they had nothing. Yeah. And they defeated all the technologically most sophisticated powers of their time Yeah, with the strategy. And I think that's really fascinating because in the age we live now, it's all about technology and, you know, power is technology and things. And so just the fact that because of asymmetry of things, it made it possible yeah. for him to c- construct this, the largest empire ever right. constructed in history in 25 years. Right. Anyway, it just, to me, that's mind boggling. Yeah. Do you think that that is due to a particular moment in time? The armies that exist in the world now. Mm-hmm. with machine guns <laughs> you don't have composite bow horsemen defeating those armies no but there are places like afghanistan uh-huh. <laughs> that seem to defy the idea that technology overrides everything in warfare yes but There is always the huge disadvantage that an army that is built on marginal areas Mm -hmm. are built on marginal areas. Right. It seems that, I think it is significant, the Mongols succeed at a time when, you know, they're not fighting tanks. Right. Oh, yes. Sure. So. Yeah. The, the sort of thing that you would have to think of to apply these sorts of tactics as someone in a military now, you would have to conceive of a whole new system that could bring that kind of asymmetry to bear. That's the other problem with World War II is the capabilities of everybody is basically on par wherever there's a standstill. People are just constantly running into, well, we have about the same development of technology, and so you're always trying to outrace the other person. Well, that's true, but yeah. then there's the example of the French in Indochina. Uh-huh. Tell us, tell, in tell us about China. that. Well, I'll start with the Vietnam, Laos uh-huh. were all colonies of France uh-huh. from the late 19th century on. At the end of World War II, in fact, in World War I, Ho Chi Minh had an appointment with Wilson Uh to try to get Vietnam set up as a separate independent country, Uh and he didn't choose to see him. Uh But, so anyway, 
Vietnam tried to become an independent nation at the end of World War One and at oh. the end of World War Two, mm -hmm. didn't work. Went back to France. Why? Well, I mean, France was our major ally. How right. can we tell France they can't have their colony? So anyway, they decide they're going to fight against France. Uh -huh. Well, th that's a pretty asymmetric war. Yeah. Well, and even in World War II, the Japanese took it over, and they fought against the Japanese. The Japanese never successfully defeated the Vietnam Army mm -hmm. during World War II. Yeah. So they defeated the Japanese first. Yeah. Then they defeated the French. Yeah. And then they defeated the Americans. Right. It, pretty asymmetric. So there are certain military doctrinal ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Something like... The idea that air power is the most superior sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We actually see throughout history, anytime you have planes bomb stuff, with maybe the exception of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but there are a lot of, that's a very mm -hmm. complicated situation. Mm -hmm. But let's take the Blitz in London. Mm -hmm. The result of the Blitz in London is not, oh yes, Germany, right? right? <laughs> you have the civilian population hardened right and they decide to fight harder absolutely and so that seems to be a idea that technology is the highest priority right mm -hmm. if we just use air power right we will win out right i think that's different than a strategy that is looking at the whole picture right there's a way to fight with a modern army that is Humane, not in the sense of not brutal, which possibly you could do less brutal forms of warfare. But I just mean where you're thinking about the human element and not just the technological element. Right, right. Because once you think, oh, I have the magic gizmo mm -hmm. that's going to do this, mm -hmm. you know, there's other human beings on the other side who are also sort of thinking through right. things. And how do you deal with being bombed constantly? Mm -hmm. People develop solutions to that and then there's rebuilding later right? right there's some resilience required there so in vietnam there's a lot of just carpet bombing stuff mm -hmm. and the strategy is well we're just going to win through air power and so you have that sort of technological idea and yes they have planes so that's asymmetrical but you're not thinking in those human terms right as you're conducting right there are technological differences so as well as humans so take the technological first well take look what happened in world war one you get trench warfare the defense mm -hmm. wins mm -hmm. why i mean you still are mostly on foot you got a lot of right. horses moving stuff but you got machine guns right so we end up with trench right well the germans figure out oh with these internal combustion engines we can move faster right and so now we're back to mobility. Right. So we get a new phase. Right. Then we you get run in, an, You the, run into the problem of, okay, now I'm using so much firepower that if I clear an area, <laughs> now there's nothing useful for me in that area. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, yeah. Well, and then you end up with the atom bomb. Right. And then it's like, ooh, well, we can't really go to war, and we can't even mass an army anywhere. Right. So you end up the, with a whole new... Yeah, there's a, you have to develop a new so, doctrine yeah. because if we use this option, that's the end of the ballgame for everybody. Right. So how does that change, right? Right. So that's the technological side. And yes, going back, I mean, you're right. I think the Mongol Empire only could have happened at that stage yeah. of technological development. Sure. But now coming to the human side of it, well, it seems to me that you run gambits from all the way to it's a brutal army going to set up a brutal regime uh -huh. to we're just fighting defensively against right. a brutal enemy or something. Right. Somehow on the other side. Yeah, you have something like a militia right. that's just defensive at home. Right. Yeah, so that it purely becomes a defensive right. militia. Oh, so from the human side, you have that sort of scale right. as well. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, Charlie, hopefully this discussion has got folks to think about some of the issues involved with armies and particularly the Mongol army and Mm -hmm. how culture of a military and the goals of that military affects the way they go about doing stuff. If you folks have any comments or questions, you can always email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. Thanks for coming and talking to me, Charlie. You bet. Thanks, Gil. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks to continue talking about the ideas and books which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. <laughs>